Hey everyone, I'm Veronica, the Community Manager at NextGen Men. NextGen Men is a community of people who share a vision of a future where men and boys feel less pain and cause less harm. Changing our culture means unlearning harmful messages like boys don't cry and boys will be boys. It means recognizing power, privilege, and oppression at work and saying, how do we fix this? The NextGen Men community is here to support one another and encourage each other to grow, to be accountable, and to take action, both online and in person, so that the next generation inherits a better world. Your contributions support a community that's learning and unlearning together through events, our online forum, and our family of podcasts, and you're supporting the next generation of men through our youth programming with 12 to 14 year old boys. Becoming a monthly supporter is your invitation to join a private online forum, free events, discounted merch, and more. Join us at nextgenmen.ca slash join. Hey, Samantha. Hey, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Um, I wanted to send you this article uh, just real quick because I, I found it and I thought it was really interesting. I, I love your opinion on this. Um, I'm just going to send it to you by email. Just, uh, I yeah, give me your take on this. Okay, sure. See if, tell yeah. me if you got it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got it. Yeah, oh, what wow. are your thoughts? Uh, well, let's start with this. Uh, the socialization process begins at birth. Families usually treat newborns differently according to their sex. Indeed, families begin to socialize gender roles even in delivery rooms. Excuse me. Boys are dressed in blue while girls are dressed in pink or other colors that are symbolically attached to their gender. Right? (sighs) Damn. This is Modern Manhood. You're listening to our series titled, How to Be a Man, where we explore how gender is taught and learned over a lifetime. Check out our first episode in the series titled, Expectations. This is episode two, Pinky and the Blue Boy. So you just heard from Samantha and Sezi. She's one of our producers and also the star of her own podcast, Masculinity, as well as a very curious person about gender, And I called her up to ask her about this paper titled Gender Socialization and Identity Theory by Michael J. Carter, which we'll post in the show notes. You know, how friends usually call each other and talk about research papers. But since we have a baby boy, Charlie, do you remember from episode one? We have to go back and pick some clothes for Charlie. And as Samantha read earlier, colors are symbolically attached to gender, which means the clothes we buy place gender expectations. And honestly, this is tough, y'all. So how are some of these parents dealing with issues of clothes, colors, and gender? So I'm Alana Young, and I'm from Edmonton, Alberta. Yes, everything is gendered. Um everything from socks to diapers to like you name it it is gendered so my name is lee weiler uh i'm originally from southwestern ontario in a small city called woodstock because we didn't know what gender she would be uh you know we just went with colors that, that worked well 
And so, you know, there's a light blue below the, the chair rail that came with the room, and then there's an off-white up above. And, you know, it looks nice, that kind of thing, with light gray curtains, you know, but... My name is Erin Dawson-Myers. I'm from Calgary, Alberta. Um, and we had the questions like, oh, but, like, what are you having? What colors are we supposed to... What clothes are we supposed to get them? What toys are we supposed to get them? And I'm like, it doesn't matter why does that matter um we're not you know doing that do you ever have a moment where you start questioning mundane things and then ask wait how did this happen like why are cars shaped that way where why do they have four wheels you know why not five wheels why not six wheels or you know why did we decide to have stop signs that look like that I'm sure there's answers to these things. And I wonder the same thing about pink and blue and gender. Like, how did blue mean boy and pink mean girl? Like in that article, Samantha read. We wanted to get to the bottom of this. So back to the phone call with me and Samantha. So I also found this and I want you to read it. And I emailed this, this, this article to you. Um, okay. yeah, let me, let me know what you think of this one. Okay. All right. Uh, let me open this up. Oh, the complicated gender history of pink mm-hmm. by Pooja Batarcharji. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah. If you go back to the 18th century, little boys and little girls of the upper classes both wore pink and blue and other colors uniformly, said Valerie Steele, director of the museum at FIT the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York still believes that the acquisition of two 18th century paintings by American millionaire Henry Huntington started turning the tide in favor of pink being a girl's color. The blue boy depicted a boy dressed in blue and pinky portrayed a girl in pink attire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like I sent this to you because I'm just like, you know, people always think that like this idea of gender is very like natural and it's come from like farther away, but obviously it's like, socially constructed, but I wanted to know like, like the origin of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I'm kind of like shook that, you know, it started out not the way it is now. Like I didn't know that you were literally just assigned this through paintings. Right. <laughs> just right. This because of painting. It's so. just like Victorian paintings too. These just like these, these, these rich people, they're just like, Oh yeah, this person looks great in blue. This person looks great in pink. And therefore, all boys should be blue and all girls should be pink. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't believe that. I also have never seen these paintings before, given that so much right? that's been dictated by these two paintings. Right? Yeah, you- two paintings. Can you believe it? These two paintings from the late 1700s changed the way we think and look at and see gender. Speaking of, have you seen these paintings? Let's describe you what they look like. Cool. Yeah, I mean, look at this blue boy situation real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, like, because, like, uh, tell me what you think of the blue. Like, describe the blue boy to me first. He looks super aristocratic. Right. Um, like, hand on the hip with, like, I don't know if that's, like, a travel bag that he has or whatever. But whatever he's yeah, wearing, he is definitely draped in like some sort of silk or satin. Just like, mm-hmm. obviously, somebody who's wealthy. I mean, it, you know what? It's probably shiny. Mm. So like this is like very 
uh, yeah, just looking very, very um, powerful. You know, it's like a little boy, but you could tell that like if you mess with this kid, something bad's gonna happen to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> like very powerful. Like don't mess. Like don't mess with this person. Let me describe Pinky here in a second. Here, um, uh, this little girl, this little white girl. Probably around the same age as Blue Boy, let's uh, say 10, 12, around there. Um, you know, dressed all in this light pink, very uh, light, light, almost kind of satin uh, style of dress. And her pose is very, um, very feminine and very, like, very kind of like she has the very dainty uh, arms and she has one arm crossed behind her back. Um, and yeah, like the pose is very different. Uh, obviously it's very like, uh, almost like virginistic, right? Wait, did you hear what I did there? I said, quote, her pose was very feminine. I inferred this just by looking at her pose. It's like, I, I couldn't help but put gender in her way. Yes, all the pink color plays into that gendering. But there was so much more that I associated with feminine. I think we need to unpack this a little bit more after the break. This episode of Mar Manhood is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. When you make a gift to the Calgary Foundation, it's a gift that keeps on giving. The Foundation's knowledgeable staff will provide advice on the community's most pressing needs, keeping your interest at heart, and helping you give back in a way that is meaningful for you. Your contributions are invested in an endowment fund that provides a permanent source of funding, allowing you to make an impact now and forever. If you're a professional advisor creating a giving plan for a client or a donor wanting to give back to the community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org. To learn more or to check out Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channel. This episode of Modern Manhood is also brought to you by Pod Power. And with Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a pod power shout out to Your Forest. Now, Your Forest is a podcast about the natural world. So here's stories about the environment, renewable resources, conservation, forestry, hunting, fishing, and more. This is a podcast for those who cannot live without the joys and wonders of all wild things. So you can find Your Forest wherever you get your podcast or at yourforestpodcast.com. So that's Your Forest Podcast. Okay, let's go back to that quote that Samantha read at the beginning of this episode. The socialization process begins at birth. Families usually treat newborns differently according to their sex. Indeed, families begin to socialize gender roles even in delivery rooms. I want to repeat that. The socialization process begins at birth. Now, in episode one of the series, we saw that the expectations start before birth. And now we're learning those expectations evolve into socialization that starts as early as the delivery room. But when are these expectations turned socialization begun to be felt by the child? When will our child, Charlie, begin to have to deal with all of this? 
But we know that even by three months of age, infants are already forming what we would call perceptual biases um, for the people that they're most frequently exposed to. This is Danielle Persik. Danielle is... I'm a cognitive scientist. Currently, I'm doing AI research. Um, but what we're talking about today, uh, I think, is related more to my, my PhD work in cognitive development. Let's go back to what Danielle said earlier. She said that by three months, infants are already forming perceptual biases. But what exactly is a bias? Here's Danielle again. Bias in terms of the the mind would be anything that that would guide you to process something in a way that is not entirely objective. Um, it can often be adaptive, uh, like many shortcuts are, but in the same way that many shortcuts are, they can also be counterproductive. And what does that look like in everyday life? So oftentimes when we have a sort of snap judgment, um, we are able to make a decision very rapidly, but at the cost of seeing the larger picture, incorporating all of the different information that might be helpful in, for example, making a decision or a judgment. So taking everything that Danielle has said, at three months, an infant is already intaking information through their senses especially their eyes and ears, and forming these biases. They're essentially shortcuts that will then guide them into efficiently understanding and navigating the world around them. Here's Danielle pointing this out in how and why infants begin to form these shortcuts or biases through hearing and beginning to understand the language of their parents at the cost of other languages. And I, I should point out that, you know, we couldn't, our brains could not function without bias. So infants start to tune into their native language, and that comes at the cost of being able to perceive, you know, phonetic discriminations from other languages. We call that neural commitment, where your, your brain is becoming tuned to the things that you're familiar with. And that means that you're less capable at making, let's say, perceptual discriminations for things that you're unfamiliar with. Danielle goes on to tell me that biases can be bucketed into two different types. Biases can be either implicit or explicit. Um, explicit biases would be the attitudes that we would state explicitly that we're aware of. Implicit biases are the ones that we're often not aware of, but still might be very powerfully guiding our behaviors and our judgments of, of others. Okay. This may be a little bit challenging to understand, so let's break this down a bit. Implicit biases, again, those perceptual shortcuts for understanding and decision-making that Danielle defined earlier, are biases or shortcuts that we may not even be aware of, but still play a powerful role in our behavior and judgment. Danielle goes further. We all have biases. It's inevitable. It's part of what it means to be human. Oftentimes, our implicit and our explicit biases don't even correlate. Again, we're not, we're not often aware of what our implicit biases are. What Danielle is stating is that we as humans 
have these innate functions called biases that are broken down into explicit and implicit biases. Explicit biases are what we explicitly know, think, and are aware of. So, for example, when we see a young person, we assume that they may not know as much as we do because they're young, because we know that they have not lived as long as we have. And so it goes that they may not have gathered enough information or knowledge as adults have. You know, the famous phrase, youth is wasted on the young. Implicit biases, though, are these almost unconscious understandings and discriminations that we're not aware of, but that act as shortcuts in our decision-making processes. And that these implicit and explicit biases don't always have to agree with one another. Again, let's take young people. Because explicitly, we may think that they may not know as much as we do. Implicitly, we may not trust them as much as we do either. Because our biases, in some cases, may line that intelligence equals trust. This is subconscious. This brings us back to when earlier in the episode, I described subconsciously the painting called Pinky as feminine. And her pose is very, um, very feminine. This is a great example of my implicit and explicit biases working against each other. Explicitly, I personally am working to be this gender progressive person and constantly educating myself and, you know, help push better gender equity with my podcast and with my work, yada, yada, yada. But when asked to describe the painting, I almost unconsciously gendered the character in this painting as feminine. This brings us back to the gender expectations turned socialization. Something is being built here. We first have these gender expectations before a child is born, which then morph into these socialization practices put upon the child after it's born. And then the child starts intaking these socializations, which then inform the child's biases. And these biases can come at a preferential qualitative cost. Here's Danielle and I discussing this. The next level after that is making associations that relate the things that maybe you're uh, familiar with or unfamiliar with, with positive or negative things. Right, right. So what you're saying is that familiarity breeds biases, and then those breed into associations, which then breeds into decision. Is that right? That's correct. In a way, if biases were just biases, then I guess it wouldn't be that bad. It's a human thing, right? Like, like you know, that's what Danielle said. We need this in our life. But what's challenging is that biases can guide us, whether we are aware of it or not. In defining what we think and know is, you know, good, safe, or tolerable, and whatever is bad, dangerous, or even toxic. And, you know, exactly what is bad or what is good. And this idea plays a huge role in gender because whether we know it or not, explicitly or implicitly, gender comes with good and bad connotations. Well, my name is Michael Reichert, and I'm a psychologist. Michael Reichert is an applied and research psychologist who wrote the books Reaching Boys, Teaching Boys, Lessons About What Works and Why, 
And also he wrote, I can learn from you boys as relational learners. And he's writing a new book and it's called How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. I, I tell a story. I had a friend, have a friend, and she was uh, uh, pregnant carrying twins. And she knew that one was a boy and one was the girl. And she said to me, you know, Mike, I know which one's the boy. And I said, really, how do you know? And she said, uh, he's the one who kicks me. We project onto boys from the time we learn that there's a boy about to be born. We project onto them all these assumptions. These assumptions happens right from birth. And these assumptions or these gender biases have effects. We may not think about it all the time. It may not even be in the front of parents' brains, but these assumptions come at a biased cost. There are own biases that are then transposed onto our children. Here's Michael Reichert telling another story of how bias can be manifest in how we gender children. Uh, a famous uh, family therapist in New York City, Olga Silverstein, wrote a book, The Courage to Raise Good Men. And she tells a story in the book uh, about a research study in which uh, there was a doctor's waiting room and various patients, you know, waiting for the doctor, a hidden video camera, and a mom carrying an infant dressed in white. And it, at a certain point, the nurse comes and says, Mrs. So-and-so, the doctor will see you now. And the mom takes the child dressed in white and asks one or another person in the waiting room, would you mind holding my daughter for a moment? Would you mind holding my son? And goes into the into the doctor's office for a bit, and the video camera films what ensues. When the child is identified as a female, the child is held close, talked to, smiled at. When the child is identified as a boy, within 30 seconds, he's down on the floor playing with keys. In this research study, we can explicitly see an implicit bias in action. When a child was dressed in white, a neutral color, but verbally identified by a different gender, the reaction in how that child was cared for was explicitly different gender to gender. If this gender differentiation is consistent around a child, that becomes socialization. And again, the child innately, unconsciously intakes the socialization and then informs their own biases biases that will affect how they see and appreciate themselves and others. Here's Danielle again, explaining what this looks like and how it has a long-term effect. Right. So oftentimes adults, parents, caretakers, they're not even aware of how they're expressing their bias and their children are still picking them up. For example, they might have a facial expression that indicates, oh, I don't really like that. Or they might say something under their breath. And because humans are, we've evolved to be extremely, you know, tuned into other people's expressions. It's extremely adaptive for us to be able to read people's expressions. Kids pick that up. <laughs> and this has been experimentally manipulated. It's been shown to be a, a method of transmitting bias. So kids will, will make inferences about other individuals on the basis of having seen adults, you know, send these very subtle cues. Remember the other type of bias, explicit biases? Biases that we would explicitly state and are aware of? 
well, those have a dramatic effect as well. Another really powerful one is what we call generic language. So if you say, all girls like this, all boys like that, just saying all anything, immediately, it's like it flips a switch in, in the mind and we make these generalizations that are just totally not true. Then these explicit and implicit biases can quickly become innate in how a child thinks, acts, and functions in this world. So by the preschool years, children already have a bunch of different social biases. Um, They typically prefer to play with people who are the same gender as as them. Um, And this is actually seen across most cultures. Thomas, how old are you? You don't have to yell. You can just talk like this. Talk normally. Eight. Eight. How old are you? Six. Six. <laughs> so you can talk right here. I'll just leave it right here. Okay. What grade are you in? Three. One. These are my nephew and my niece, Thomas and Isabel. Thomas, if you remember from episode one, asked me if yoga was for girls. Now, I know my sister and my brother-in-law who have agreed to record them like this have never tried to put gender normative rules to Thomas and Izzy, as she likes to be called. But we're going to do a little test right now with them to see if they picked up some gender bias. Person, do you know what a police person is? You know what the police are. The police are. It's a job you can get. It's like, it's a very, like, it, the uh, police, like arrest people and give fines What is it? to keep people safe. So one of the tests Danielle advised me to do is to get them to draw specific professions to see what they picked as a gender for each profession. So I picked three of them, a nurse, a police officer, and a construction worker. Okay. Okay. So what do they look like here? Like what's their, is this a uniform? Uh... Well, their uniform—they're wearing their uniform. So, what does the uniform look like? It's blue, mm-hmm. and it's like uh, blue pants. Uh, it has a hat with like a badge on it. Yeah. And is the police person? What is their gender? Uh, boy. Boy? How come? Because I'm a boy. Because you're a boy? Okay. <laughs> and because I I don't really know a lot, I don't really know about a lot of girl police officers. Okay. Uh, if I think of a police officer, I think about it being like a boy. Isabel said the same thing. Uh, yeah, I've never seen a girl one, and I don't really recognize girl police officers. Okay. Okay. I think they would... So it would be weird to have a job to be a police. How come? Because. Just because. For a nurse, it was the same thing, but opposite. Granted, they do know someone who is a nurse, their Auntie Megan. Isabel? What? What? Um, have you seen a boy nurse? Um, no. No? What do you think a boy nurse looks like? Um, I think he, I think they look... Kind of like a girl, but their hair is a little shorter and stuff. Okay. Okay. And would they wear a dress? No. Because you have a dress, right? No. 
No, this is a shirt. Oh, the shirt. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's interesting that for a construction worker, they drew it as a boy, even though they know that their cousin Maisie, who is a landscaper, is a girl. And so they catch themselves here. So this is a boy because um, I've never seen a girl construction oh my God, it's always the same before. reason. Um, and, and I, and I've never seen one because, um, because there's, I don't think there's a lot of girls that work at construction. Hmm. What about Maisie? Yeah. What about Maisie? Um, except for Maisie. (laughs) Maisie works with only girls. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It's interesting to me something that mirrors what Danielle said, that exposure and surroundings really affect the way Thomas and Isabel see the world. They know that their Aunt Megan is a nurse, so they draw a girl nurse. They draw a boy police officer because that's what they have been exposed to at school and in the media. But even though their cousin Maisie, who is granted a landscaper but can be confused for a construction worker and works with a team of women – the bias still is connected that construction workers are male. Police officers, male. Nurses, female. Construction workers, male. I mean, this is what I learned when I was a kid. Again, I'm beginning to see a cycle here. I feel like, because we all have gender biases, right? Samantha says it best. We all have gender biases. We all have these gender biases because we, as humans, are a part of this sort of bias cycle. Here's me and Samantha talking about these biases again in relation to color. If you see blue or you see pink and you think of humanity, you have an automatic association. Like, That's right. uh, but it's interesting how our biases are changed just by a specific type of color, right? Yeah. But how do we, whether it's through colors or any part of our lives, you know, how do we break this bias cycle? Let's ask Michael. And I talk in my book about three fundamental strategies, square one as I think of them. Three strategies that parents can deploy tonight, tomorrow, whenever. Um, And it begins, number one, with deep listening. And I start by saying... Okay, parents, think about your day today or your day yesterday. How many minutes did you spend actually listening to your son? I don't mean telling him what to do or interrogating him or scolding him or dominating him or, or, you know, schlepping him here or schlepping him there. I mean, how many minutes did you spend actually listening to him? The assumptions that we make as people as parents, are the things that may hold us back from loving and listening to our children. The assumption of color, the bias we hold for boys and girls. We learn that they do have a lot of history, and we play out that history like a vicious cycle. What Charlie, our boy, will learn will play out in his social circles. However, it doesn't mean all is lost. It just means we need to listen, learn, and adjust. How do we break this bias cycle? 
Here's Danielle with some advice. Yeah, so implicit bias is very difficult for us to kind of do work on on our own. So if we really care about ending the the cycle of implicit bias, what we have to do is acknowledge the science, which shows that implicit bias is a function of our environments, of what we are exposed to, and then change what we can actually change, which is the environment. What Danielle says here is critical, but it's also incredibly freeing. We have to acknowledge the science, which shows that implicit bias is a function of our environments. Okay, so we have implicit bias, but how is that freeing? Well, as Danielle defined earlier, implicit biases are the ones that we're often not aware of. We, meaning you and me, we may not even be aware of our own biases. You and me, we may not know some of the gender judgments we've learned throughout our lifetime, but they're there, deeply socialized and learned inside of us through our environments. And because as children in this cycle, we didn't have control over these environments or which environment we grew up in, then those implicit biases that we learned, we couldn't control. Michael Reichert explains it very well. And and we had the attitude that we would circle our wagons around our family. We would protect our son from the harsh cultural norms that would take him away from himself, that we would our son from those norms. And one of the most sobering realizations we had as new parents was that there was no circling of wagons possible, that the cultural norms were everywhere, including in us. And once we acknowledge that those biases are there and become educated about it, like we're doing now through this episode and through this podcast in general, we can become more and more aware that we have these implicit biases, which then gives us the power to think about how we can begin to challenge our own biases and beliefs. We can also challenge them for the next generation. And we've seen that if you take young infants from one environment, say that's racially homogenous, and you put them into another environment that might be more heterogeneous, um, you can actually make that bias go away. You know, in my youth, I lived in an immigrant community, and I was surrounded by people of my age from different backgrounds. Some were Indian, some were Pakistani, some were from China, Korea, Latin America. And I can honestly say that this helped me understand their cultures better and relieved me from some of my own biases that may have been given more air to breathe if I didn't live in that community. And yet I know this can be a reality for everybody. Everybody can't live in this type of community that I was raised up in. However, as a community, if we make the environment around children more diverse, meaning through gender, through race, through culture and religion, more heterogeneous, a child's biases, especially the negative critical ones, can go away. We can also be intentional about how we interact with children and find the opportunities to encourage them into more heterogeneous environments. And why? No one person represents all of the many different categories that they could belong to um, on all dimensions. We, we are 
individual in so many different ways. And if we helped our children think in, in terms of individuals instead of in terms of groups, um, even if we're using the the words for the groups, if we're if we're helping them to understand that individuals um, are individual, I think that that would go a long way in helping them form better relationships and have less pernicious biases. And isn't that what we want for our children, for our boy, Charlie, to form better relationships, better relationships with their families, with their friends, and with the greater world around them, including themselves? I think it's time to break this vicious bias cycle. And you can do it. And you know what? You've already started by listening today. Our Manhood is created by Herman Vijegas, Ramoy Philip, Samantha Nsezi, and Danny Perez. With support from Next Gen Men and the Next Gen Men Circle, as well as the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Logos were also created by Arcade Studio in Calgary, Alberta. Join us next time as we ask how important is touch, especially a father's touch, to the development of of our childhood.